Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. We are a community-based podcast and radio show in which people of Santa Ana, California, tell us in their own words about the music that means the most to them. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, your program host and director of this project. The project is based on my conviction that we people in the modern urban world need to learn to listen to one another, and that music and all it brings us is the perfect place to begin. My name is David Castaneda, music researcher here for the Si Yo Fuera Una Canción podcast. I'm so happy to be a part of this project, using my scholarly training and my performance experience to bring you the stories, music, and lived experiences of those living right here in Santa Ana. As Diana Davis reminds me at the very end of our interview, we had met and moved in the same community spaces well before I approached her for this conversation. Because of this, although we do not know one another well, we could be confident of sharing quite a few points of interest and conviction. We explore some of them here. Within our shared terrain, I found Diana to be a subtle and thought-provoking interlocutor, sometimes making me realize that I had not thought my way through something as thoroughly as I imagined I had. I hope you enjoy her fine and lively mind as much as I did in interviewing her. Okay, Diana, um, I'm really thrilled about this interview. I barely know you. We met when I was tabling at an outdoor event being put on by the local Vietnamese immigrant community, and we chatted, and you expressed an interest in being interviewed. Well, I asked you first, and you expressed an interest, and here we are. So why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about what brought you to that event in Centennial Park, where the local Vietnamese community was putting on musical numbers and having tables and food and all sorts of good stuff in support of immigrant rights. What brought you to that event? So the event itself was put on by Viet Rise. Um, they are a community organizing event in the rough area of Southern California. And I believe it was a member of another org, Abolition Now, that I stay in communication with. They found out about and they were asked to table that same event. Um, so from there, I just mentioned it to some people I knew and we all decided to go as a group and see what was going on that day. It was billed as a community networking day to bring people together and to hopefully create a dialogue about where we should be going forward. Um, so, yeah, I was just really interested to see what was going on that day. Um, I saw a lot of people I recognized and then I came across your booth. And, yeah, the show was like the the concept of it was so interesting that I was more than happy to volunteer and be willing to come on and talk. Oh, that's great. I, I'm so glad to make this connection. This is something that it's a little bit of a theme that runs through our show or has, has begun to run through our show is, is that there are a lot of activist groups and networks here in Southern California, more than people might think. So let's now let's, let's just uh, back up a little bit. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about how it is that you're in this part of Southern California. I don't know, if, uh, Diana, if, if you actually live in Santa Ana, but we were in Santa Ana that day that we met. And a little bit about what it is you do. Uh, if you feel comfortable sharing your age, that's great. And 
you know, just to give listeners a little bit of, of an idea of who it is I'm talking to. Yeah, of course. So my name is uh, Diana Davis, and I was actually born in Santa Ana. Um, so I've been here in Southern California my whole life. Uh, I haven't traveled much, so I'm still here. I'm 26 now. And yeah, I, I work up in Anaheim just doing electronics work. But in the meantime, I try to stay connected and organize different groups be just because there's especially in the entire time I've been here in Orange County, there's been so much just poverty and so much need and so much lack of resources to meet those needs that I've always seen it as very important for us to be organizing and networking and providing programs and solutions to that need. How did you get your start? What was the first step that took you down this road? So I think actually it might have been a very religious start. And I, I don't consider myself religious now, but I was raised Roman Catholic. And one of the institutions I was brought up in is the Servite Order. To sum it up, there was a large group of brothers that had a vision and they were given a mission and it was to serve the needs of people throughout the world. So they sold off all of their goods they started a monastery and they tried to just go and help as many people as they could. So that organization moved out to um, Orange County. They have a location in Anaheim and I, so being brought up in that space, it involved me going out a lot onto the streets and community of people who were suffering suffering, and mm -hmm. didn't have enough um, to really survive the way they needed to. So I really started doing a lot of work in that aspect. Um, and my reasonings changed a lot more now, but that I guess I could say that was a start of me realizing that those conditions were here in Orange County and they were so prevalent and that they needed to be addressed. Wow. I've never heard of that order. H how do you spell it? So it is S-E-R-V-I-T-E. -E. So it's Latin for servant and it's right. the servite order. So interesting. Many people that I interview for this show grew up Roman Catholic. It's pretty common in Spanish-speaking communities, of course. And it's just a very interesting kind of thread that, that weaves through a great many of the lives of people I meet here in the inland part of, of Orange County. Um, something else I just want to chat about with you briefly, because I, I wonder about your perspective on it. Uh, so you said you were born in Santana and yes. raised in this inland part of, of Orange County. From the outside and in the uh, corporate media, there's an image of Orange County as a kind of enclave of wealthy white folks, which is really substantially far from the truth. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned going out as, as a young person and seeing just how much need and suffering there was on the streets. And that if anything is worse now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, I, I just, I, I'm interested in your perspective on this question of sort of what Orange County is for you as a young person growing up here. Yeah, of course. Um, I think in some ways it definitely is an enclave of extreme wealth. But like you said, I feel like there are many 
perspectives and people who are pushing the narrative that that's all Orange County is and that it's just a area of extreme wealth. Everyone's happy. It's sort of like the idea of that that show that came out a while ago, the OC or like the Housewives of Orange County or um, there's all sorts of things that are put out in the media and they only focus on that aspect. And while there are communities out there like that, the vast majority of people in Orange County, I think, are actually in, they are in need or they are close to that. Um, Most people in Orange County are not as well off as those images would say they are. Um, Not even close. Not not even even close. close. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is unfortunate because sometimes I feel like it's not just the image, but the influence and control in the county is often dominated by this very small minority of extreme wealth. And the vast majority of us that don't have that, we sort of just fall by the wayside and our interests aren't really looked at, which is why there are so many prevalent problems of wealth inequality. And like you said too, there's definitely been an increase in that poverty, but it's always been here. And I know even when I was growing up, there were so many stories from people older than me that had lived in Orange County their whole life of just the people they would see out on the streets and the experiences they were going through. And it's always sort of just been there, but it's been pushed under this guise of the extreme wealth. Yeah, and there, there I think you see one of the really difficult aspects of... Um, representational democracy. It's so very easy in the system we have here in this country right now for wealth to stand in for numbers, as mm-hmm. it were, uh, you know, in, t- in terms of political influence and in terms of getting resources and in terms of resources being made available to those who need them. Um, if the money's not behind the efforts, it's it, it takes so much work by so many people to to equalize that, I guess. No, completely so. That's exactly right. Um, And to your earlier point, even where there's so many different orgs working in Orange County, I think it's because of that, because of that dominance that that minority has, that there's not a lot of efforts put to the majority. Yeah. So the grassroots scene here is really something actually in terms of its variety well, the variety of kinds of people that live in the inland parts of Orange County is just astonishing, just astonishing. Mm-hmm. And and then the variety of their needs and the way those are coming through these um, many grassroots organizations. I I try on the show to you know to shout them out as as much as I can. Just a few words about a couple of the activist organizations that Diana mentions. Viet Rise tells us on the website that the organization, and I quote, advances social justice and builds power with working class Vietnamese and immigrant communities in Orange County. We build leadership and create systemic change through organizing, narrative change, cultural empowerment, and civic engagement. Taken together, the adjacent communities of Garden Grove, Westminster, and Santana are home to the largest single community of Vietnamese heritage outside of Hanoi. 
Much of this migration took place after 1975 as a direct result of the disastrous U.S.-American intervention in the Vietnamese Civil War. What is called in English the Servite Order was founded in Florence, Italy in 1233 as Ordo Servorum Beatae Mariae Virginis, Latin for the Order of Servants of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The followers dedicate themselves to hospitality and compassion. Hospitality and compassion are what is needed beyond a doubt in dealing with our nation's housing crisis. In 2019, the last year for which reliable numbers have been released at the time of this episode, there were close to 7,000 people living on the streets of Orange County or relying on shelters for basic services. COVID and insanely spiraling housing prices are factors, of course. But another is, precisely, the lack of hospitality and compassion. A very common misconception equates homelessness with mental illness and drug addiction, something quite far from the truth, and on this basis seeks to actually block the construction of affordable and transitional housing. Orange County's record in this regard is particularly egregious, as has recently been scathingly documented in Imperfect Paradise, a podcast produced by LAist Studios at radio station KPCC. I highly recommend it. But the objectives of this show are a little bit more uh, in the direction of how art weaves together with people and their needs and their wants and their aspirations. And that sort of, that is going to now bend us a little bit in this interview toward um, talking about the songs that you chose, which are very interesting songs. Diana, why don't you introduce your first song, the one that you chose that represents where you come from in whatever manner you choose to interpret that idea of where you come from. Why don't you introduce uh, that song to our listeners? Yeah, so the first song I picked to represent that was um, Four Non Blondes, Dear Mr. President. And I was sort of thinking for a while of what I should be going with to represent that. Like, I tried really hard. I'm like, oh, I should find artists that literally write about Orange County. And I'm like, oh, that's more retroactive then. I should have something that more defined growing up in Mm. Orange County. And I know one song, it was actually my mother that absolutely loved it. Well, she loved their whole um, album that they did, Four Non Blondes. Um, So I grew up listening to them quite a lot. We were talking about this contradiction of what Orange County looks like and what it's presented as versus the reality. And I feel like one of those things as I grew up in Orange County that really helped me realize that was sort of the perspective that I was hearing in songs similar to this. And I felt like it was really speaking to the reality of Orange County rather than what's put out, like the TV shows we were talking about earlier. Yeah, you chose well, because what is it she she says over and over again in the refrain of this song? It's like what a wonderful country or what a wonderful city. Is that, is that the phrase? Yeah. I think she shifts back and forth um, between what a, what a wonderful country, what a wonderful city and the world's burning it down. Yeah. And I mean, you could, you could read that as ironic. You could read it as bitter. You could read it as just mourning. I I, I think so. It, it could be viewed as a, as almost a mourning because there's such 
beauty and depth and variety like we've been talking about in Orange County. And unfortunately, it's not given the care and nurturing that it requires. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of um, unmet need. So literally, you know, what a beautiful city, what a beautiful country, um, what a beautiful county we live in, but the actual beauty in it is just being destroyed slowly. Wow. Okay, let's listen to it. I'm excited. (laughs) Me too. I'm looking outside of my window. The view that I see is a child and mama. And the child is begging for money. Tell me why, tell me why the woman is blind. Is she so broke? The kid's dealing crime. It's such a beautiful city. But the world is burning it down. Yeah, that's a powerful song. Yeah, there were parts of it that I was even thinking um, almost but highlighted what we were talking about earlier. Um, It's the line of one day I'll have lots of money and I'll have to give it up for this rich society. Mm -hmm. Um, And here, obviously, we have so much wealth and we can consider not only our society, but our county as rich. But we're constantly needing to give up what we have for the others that don't have enough. Right. Wealth inequality. You know, it makes me ask myself, kind of a rhetorical question, but worth asking anyway, I think, can any society be considered rich when its wealth is not equitably distributed? (laughs) I think in some ways it can, but in other ways it can't. So in a society where so much is concentrated, especially when you even consider like global wealth. In that way, you could say, oh, yes, this is a rich country. Like, look, look at all the mansions we have in Orange County. Look at all the privilege and all of like the services and all the amazing things. But you're completely right. Can we call it a rich society when the vast majority don't have enough? Yeah, don't even have close to enough. Yeah, I'm going to let that rhetorical question just kind of hang there because I think it answers itself as rhetorical questions tend to do. Um, and I think it's pretty clear where each of us uh, stands in, in relationship to it. The group Four Non Blondes has explained its name as a reference to the stereotype of the blonde, blue eyed, presumptively white Californian an image with which they were emphatically not identified. The band had a short but successful career from 1989 to 1994, releasing one album. They were especially popular with lesbian and progressive audiences. It turns out that there is quite a number of songs in both English and Spanish that address presidents directly. They are completely different from one another, enumerating injustices in all styles of music, with tones that range from light sarcasm to bitter irony. It's almost a subgenre. Señor Presidente, yo quiero pedirle por favor que pavimente en las calles de mi barrio. Como donde vive usted, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
señor presidente, yo quiero pedirle por favor que nos arreglen los parques de mi barrio, como los pinos de usted. Qué vida tan diferente, la mía y la suya, señor presidente. Mientras yo vivo en un rancho que se cae de pobre siempre trabajando. Usted es un terrateniente que vive en palacio rodeado de sirvientes. Dear Mr. President, were you a lonely boy? Are you a lonely boy? How can you say no child is left behind? We're not dumb and we're not blind. They're all sitting in your cells while you pave the road to hell. Perhaps none of these quite pack the apocalyptic wallop of the Dr. Strangelove image with which four non-blondes conclude their song. Oh my God, the bomb has just dropped, and everybody climbed right on top, screaming, What a wonderful country! Oh my God, the bomb has just dropped, and everybody climbed right on top, screaming, What a wonderful country! There's actually kind of a spacious feel in just like the, the way the song moves through time. And that for me is a really interesting combination because I, th I think of, for instance, like punk, where the rage is, of course, often very evident in the lyrics and in the manner of singing. And it's also, you you know, you have that typical punk bass line that's just going do, 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 you know, and this isn't like that. It's like really spacious. So is this typical for them or is this song unique in this way? Or tell me a little bit about your perspective on it. I think it is a little bit um, typical because unfortunately they only ever made one album. So that's probably why you haven't heard more of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like it's really interesting because it brings like a, like you said, a spaciousness, but almost like a casualness and like a, like a light melody through mm -hmm. it all. But mm -hmm. it starts to peak at certain aspects. And I feel like that almost highlights like you were saying, the rage behind the lyrics even more when it peaks there, mm -hmm. like when it talks about, you know, having to give things up for society or how everyone just goes along with what's going like um, at the mm -hmm. end when she's talking about the drum and the bomb going off and everyone yeah. just jumps on screaming how great uh, the country is. I, I feel like that peak suddenly breaks the sort of the spacey melody of the rest of the song mm. and it really drives home like you were saying like the uh, the poignancy and the rage behind the lyrics 
Yeah, like it, you're almost, I, I wouldn't say lulled because it's not that kind of a song, but that last verse hits very hard. And I have to say, when I when I heard that the first time, I, I had to go look up, look up the date of the song. It's like, that sounds to me like a description of what has happened in the in this country around the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, and of course, this is what 1992, I think, was this song. It's it's considerably pre-Trump, but it's such a good description of the last five years. Um, I believe um, this song was released during Clinton's presidency in the early 90s. And it did tie in with, I believe... I think it was the Gulf War, um, uh, just conflicts going on in the early 90s. Um, and I feel like, like you're saying, we there's definitely almost a acceptance and a reverence of combat and tension and war that's so common today that I feel like you could see back then as well. Yeah, it's not like it wasn't already there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely agree. The song seems a bit too relevant a lot of the time. <laughs> I'm afraid so. As with so much protest music, it's like, really? I remember I I did play this song um, a few years back when I first started at the job I have now. And it was just starting with Trump's presidency. And I remember I played it on my speakers and someone made a comment of, oh, why are you always criticizing the president? I'm like, do you know when this came out? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that kind of that kind of brings it home. There's a line in there that really grabs me. And I want to try to see if I can get at why it grabs me so hard. Uh, where she says, won't she says, Mr. President, won't you lend me a future? Mm-hmm. Won't you lend me a future? And yeah, I guess that just gets me because, well, I, I work a lot with young people. I'm a university professor. And it's just very present in my mind how people of my generation have handed such a raw deal to people of your generation. And, and just, the, just the idea of, I mean, that, that is such a bitter line. Lend me. It's not even, won't you give me my birthright, which is a future. It's like, lend me a future. And, and the whole idea of that this is something that would have to be paid back at some point. It, it's just, that line really grabs me. I, I think especially so the line following that does as well. Um, I believe she says, cause you'll just get it back in the form of the little blind woman on the corner. Mm. Cause even if we're not given that future that we should deserve that opportunity to l- live a pursuit of happiness and to, contribute into our communities the reality is we're still going to be there the end consequence of not being lent a future is still going to be there wow i had not taken it that far but i i see what you're saying and i think you're right my goodness yeah it's quite a song um it's quite a song and i have to say that this is quite a band and and a message to be growing up with that's that sounds to me like an unusual household that you grew up in. Yeah, my mother loved um, Four Non Blondes and my father loved Linkin Park. It was an interesting combination. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh my goodness. 
and and the Catholicism was the other thing you shared about your upbringing. That that's quite a mix. Yes, always that that always pervaded all of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's just amazing. And so it was I, that in church music. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. And and never the twain shall meet. Um, my gosh. They try. They try at youth mass, but it never gets to that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear that they try. Yeah, they do try. They do make an honest attempt. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and I wonder if, well, frankly, if more of the activist piece were, were brought right in, if that wouldn't be a little bit more effective. Um, I, I think it would, actually, because I think that's what and I don't want to commentate too much on like youth music, uh, youth church music, but I feel like at least in my experience, it was the style and melody and instruments of these songs, just without any of the context. Mm, yeah. I sometimes listen to Christian radio, particularly when I'm on road trips and stuff. It's very interesting because you've got a lot of these musical values. Uh, you know, a lot of it sounds like rock. And some of it's actually pretty decent rock, you know. Um, yeah, because I would definitely say everyone involved um, in my experience in my church growing up, we're all extremely skilled musicians. And even outside of church music where some like had published albums and songs, mm -hmm. um, but then the context was just changed around to reverence, virtue and worship. Um so, you know, if that's what you want as context, then that's great. But like you were saying, when that context is ripped out from a lot of the, um, what makes those songs so powerful to begin with, then yeah. sometimes they feel lacking. And at least growing up, I felt like they did a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just speaking about the rock genre, the, the way rock and protest and resistance and rage, uh, they're all connected, you know? Yeah. And as you say, when you kind of yank out the, the protest and resistance and rage and put a different kind of lyrics in, it, it is a very strange fit to my ears anyway. But anyway, that's, uh, that's going in a different direction, I think, than you yourself are going now. Um, let's pivot here to thinking about your second song, the song that is pointed toward your hopes for the future. And if you'll be so good as to introduce that as well to our audience, and we will also listen to it. So the group itself that made this next song is Rebel Diaz. They are two Salvadorian brothers that moved to the US when they were younger, and they create a lot of music about what they see in their communities and a lot of the work that they hope they'll see going forward. Most of their music usually has that pretty centered. Um, and the song itself is American Spring. Um, and I guess for a little context, because I wish more people were aware of it, but the American Spring was a play on the Egyptian Spring and the Arabic Spring, um, which were a series of popular and mass movements that originally started in Egypt, but spread to many other countries, I guess, late 2000s, early uh, 2010s. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe this song came out in 2011. The title and lyrics of the song sort of point in a similar direction of, you know, it's time for the American spring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As indeed it is. Go. 
Salam, wherever you're from, let me be the first to extend the warm welcome to the old and the young, the students, the homies, the brothers, the workers, the mothers, make your mark, get involved, organize, hit the streets, march, protest, sing, for a new beginning, it's the American spring, be prepared, never scared, I didn't know about this group before you introduced them to me, and uh, thank you. They're doing really interesting work in the world. They're one of these hip-hop collectives that seems to be pretty dedicated to actually encouraging youth to make their own music as a way of uh, actualizing them, galvanizing them politically. Um, Pretty interesting work. A real kind of grassroots music-making and grassroots use of music. The rap group named Rebel Diaz, consisting of brothers Rod Stars, G1, and La Tere, have made their work politically centered since the 1990s. The Venegas brothers, Rod Stars, and G1 are sons of Chilean refugees who met La Tere during the time that they all lived in Chicago. The three artists moved to the Bronx and started Rebel Diaz, as a way to challenge oppression and injustice through music. The group points to the Nueva Cancion movement of the 1960s in South America as some of their greatest inspiration. In an interview with Timothy Murray for The Independent, the group says that they follow a line of musical conviction, that they come from that history of struggle, and their work is a reflection of what their roots are, which is resistance. Some of the most notable artists of the Nueva Cancion movement were Violeta Parra and Mercedes Sosa, who both wrote songs of protest and resistance, many of which are credited with inspiring the political uprisings in Iberian Europe and Latin America during the 1970s and 80s. Rebel Diaz's work has not only been musical, but also is rooted in directly impacting their community in the Bronx, New York. The group started the Rebel Arts Collective in 2009 a community space that included a multimedia studio and even an art gallery for the public, all housed in an abandoned warehouse in the Bronx. Sadly, the Rebel Arts Collective was forcefully evicted on February 28, 2013, after more than four years of providing services for the public and Bronx-based artists. Rebel Diaz continue to make music, perform, and spread their message of resistance and social change even to this day. How did you, how did this uh, group come to your attention? When when did you discover them? I think it was towards the end of high school that I discovered them. So I think in the year 2012, mm-hmm. I first heard about them. Um, they have a few popular songs um, like "Which Side Are You On" and "The Revolution Has Come" that were especially focused on the. I believe it was the last election between Mitt Romney and Obama at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think what particularly pulled me to them is like you were saying, is how much they actually were focusing and centering on community and individual development and saying, you know, I think the last, the very last lyric of this song, especially points to that of this is only the start. It's the start of individuals and communities realizing their own power and realizing that they need to take their own autonomy in their own hands. And there are several ways to do that. Like uh, they have a lyric that's goes something like organize um, 
march protest thing and like you were just saying all of these different forms we put into either action or art to express and actualize not only our existence but our resistance to this oppression yeah and something i found really encouraging in finding out more about rebel ds was that i mean as hip-hop groups go they're really long-lived they've been doing this for well over 10 years and they, you know, if you look at their website, they're, they're still doing it. They're still doing live events and um, kind of showing up where protest music is needed and, and doing their thing and, and teaching the youth. And, it, you know, that's really encouraging to, to see this kind of thing, that there is actually something very positive about what they represent, I guess I would say. Yeah, it's definitely not just the publishing and creating of just the music on its own, but the echo and ripple effect that's felt out by individuals hearing that and thinking about those ideas and concepts and saying, okay, what do I do then? It's not a question of, oh, I just take this like information and media in, but how do I transform what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that magic moment where being a passive consumer of music suddenly becomes something so much more. Suddenly you're called to be active instead of just passively consume the next album. Right, right. And it seems to me that this group's, really their main focus is on creating that magic moment and not on having quote unquote careers as hip hop stars, you know. Um, very, very encouraging stuff. and. As I'm sure you know, there are groups and teachers here in Orange County that are doing very similar initiatives mm -hmm. with hip hop, with young people. Of course, all of this has been a bit, you know, it, it went a bit dark during the pandemic. It's hit a bump. <laughs> it's hit a bump. But still I, alive. Still alive, still very much alive. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, a home studio is not out of reach for people anymore, uh, or at the very least a, a community studio that, that a lot of the equipment you need to make this music happen is, is it's no longer high-end, uh, incredibly expensive stuff. You know, that has really empowered so many people. And you hear such, such interesting things coming out of, of, of the community. It's been so decentralized from what existed before that you have so much more of an opportunity to, like you were saying, just either find a community space or even get what you need in your home to actually create and express, but then also share and then continue pushing it and have others hear it and give you feedback or reactions. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I think the whole concept of, of underground music is it's really undergone a change, you know, because it's, as you say, it's, it's very decentralized now. And, and it's more just like to find this stuff, you, you just got to be kind of determined because there's so much out there. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the other side of it is there's just a flood of, you know, media and information and art now too. Yeah. yeah. 
and finding finding the stuff that you know really floats your boat that really speaks to you that that takes some determination i find um but of course just talking to people and saying so you know what have you been listening to lately and then that's how i found this group is through talking to you and yeah i'm i'm downloading their stuff and it's going to go on my personal playlist and that is especially something i love about this podcast actually is how much it encourages that and how much it brings different perspectives and experiences um, to be shared. That's what I love about it too. Thank you, Diana. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they're really uh, quite the range of kinds of music that that do this work in people's lives, you know, that, that summarize or express where they come from and uh, gives that sense of, uh, of a future. So... Tell me a little bit more then about the future you envision. And, you know, if, if this song is, is speaking some of that for you, of course, use the song. Um, but where do you see yourself? I want to ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 20 years? Wow. Um, I, well, I hope to still be alive in five and 20 years. I hope so, too. <laughs> Um, but I'm not really, I'm not really sure. And honestly, cause I hear this same question get asked a lot of people my age in their twenties, mm -hmm. um, today. And I feel like a lot of people, there's a lot of uncertainty of where we're going to be going forward. Um, but almost if I could expand it and I hope I would then be included in this, but I would hope going forward, people have more autonomy in their lives hmm. and that they have more of a say in what goes on around them. So I, I guess I personally would hope that the things would change in five and 20 years is that I have more control over my environment and my community and that um, I can be a more positive change compared to what we have now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, you said that really well. There is this kind of feeling that things are just heading toward something. And whether it's a great mountain that we all have to climb together or a cliff that we all have to jump off together, I'm not certain. <laughs> uh, it depends a little bit who you talk to, I think. Yeah, um, I feel like there's a lot of pessimism that sometimes comes with that question just because it can, it can seem so big. Because it's not a individual question, really. It's almost a societal question. Right. And I feel like sometimes, especially with songs like this, bringing it back to the song, mm -hmm. um, that while there can be such pessimism in it, there can also be this glimmer of hope of no things can change, that people can take back control of their lives. And our conditions won't just be dictated to us we'll actually create them and we'll contribute to them and we'll build on them and improve them instead of them just being handed down to us. You're absolutely right. I mean, that is both a collective dream and necessarily a personal dream. Autonomy starts with the individual. It has to. With this show, with this podcast, through this series of in-depth interviews with individuals, getting people to really open up and think hard and speak deeply about their dreams and their hopes. 
I, I think the very act of articulating these things is really important because once you've heard yourself say something like that, uh, you're not so likely to forget it or, or, or move away from it. I don't know. Um, I, I just, I, like I think I, you're completely right though. And that that's the very necessity of art. It's the very necessity of expression. Mm. Say, say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, so in the way that we put ourselves forward and our ideas and our perspectives, that that's the vital importance of us. I guess if I was to use the same language to us to have art and to, for us to have expression, um, because I guess almost like what we were talking about earlier, it's, it can be almost just like a new societal, um, handing down of conditions or things like that but this song almost highlights the interesting binary between that of it's not just a new societal order and it's not just a new individual order mm -hmm. it's the combination of both of those it's the individual expressing itself more and that reaches the societal level and our societal expression then starts to reflect all the unique individuality of everyone. Um, and I, I guess that goes back to the concept of the song of the American spring and popular movements. Cause mm -hmm. it wasn't just a new order of things that look, you know, it's, we'll say it's different, but in the same way, it's, you know, the same old stuff. It was more of people literally going out into the streets, going into their jobs, going into their places of worship and saying, no, like we want to have space, not just for a group that's going to represent us, but we want individual space. And that's how we want to come together and organize and share this experience we live through. Are you familiar with uh, the history of anarchism? Uh, yes, I would say so. Yeah, because you're basically talking about anarchism in its in its pure form. The the word gets misused so much, and it has been turned against the people who most want to practice it. I think, but you know, if you go back a hundred years and more to the the folks who were first really theorizing anarchism, they're basically talking about what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, to call back to a previous episode of this show, because like I said, I checked a couple out and I really mm -hmm. loved, um, I think it was the most recent episode, one of the sh songs shared was by a group that called themselves Emma Goldman, and that was in reference to the, I believe it was Polish or Ukrainian immigrant, uh, Emma Goldman, that had moved to the U.S. at the she end was, of... She was Russian, actually. But yes, but yes. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's awesome that, that you're like going yeah. back. Yeah. Um, it, it's really interesting, too, because I guess I didn't expect to connect it on this level. But even in the song, one of the things that the artist is talking about that we should be personifying and remembering and honoring is like the Haymarket Martyrs. And this was a, you could call them an anarchist and working class movement that was in Chicago in the late 19th century. 
And the thing that radicalized Emma Goldman actually so much that started her career of activism was coming to America. And one of the first things she saw were the Haymarket martyrs and the Haymarket incident. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I mean, that that just weaves in very, very nicely. I can't resist this, but the song American Spring, the YouTube version of it was videoed at protests in Chicago over NATO and uh, various global efforts that do not benefit the individual and do not do not point toward the anarchist ideal, which which is, as you said, autonomy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there is this sense that things tend to repeat themselves. And of course, they have to repeat themselves a lot before real change happens. It's the nature of history, I think. Um, I am more than impressed by your ability to chart a path through all of this with such clarity. It's, it's really impressive to me. I appreciate that. It really means a lot. Um, I, I guess it's just been a concept that has almost sort of been forced not only into my life, but into a lot of people's lives because of the conditions we've sort of been raised in. Um, Cause I guess like a lot of these concepts of anarchists and anarchist thinkers, such as Goldman and all these other people, um, I wouldn't even say was a more recent uh, tendency of mine. It was more something like when I was talking about in 2012, 2013, 2014 of just mm-hmm. seeing everything that was going on and trying to explore and figure out an answer and ask myself, why does this happen? Why is it not different? And is something different possible? Um, So I I definitely agree with you when you connected it back to many um, of the founders of anarchism, because they were asking that very same question. And asking it in this really kind of fresh new way, which, man, you go back and you read like Kropotkin, uh, who is yes. my personal favorite. I love um, Conquest of Bread. It's a great book. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's so, it's raw, it's fresh, and it's really smart. And it, that that stuff is, yeah. The anarchist Emma Goldman has been practically a regular guest on our show. Diana refers back to our episode number nine, in which Kahlo Quinn chose music by the group Emma's Revolution, named for Emma Goldman. In episode 10, Abel Ruiz and I discuss Goldman as well. She was a charismatic figure who tends to capture the imaginations of U.S. Americans because she did so much of her anarchist activism in this country. But she came from a robust tradition of communist and anarchist organizing in Eastern Europe and Russia. Pyotr Kropotkin, who lived from 1842 to 1921, was one of Goldman's antecedents in the struggle to return social agency and human welfare to the hands of all. He was, ironically enough, royalty, a prince by birth, and was trained as a geographer and natural scientist. In his books and essays, Kropotkin uses his scientific background to propose the theory of mutual aid, in which the urge to help others is the driving force of history, rather than the competitive urge. This is a uniquely positive and generous view of human nature. We might understand it as a scientific version of the hospitality and compassion espoused by the Servite Order. 
Well, this is just a delightful conversation. I I have just really enjoyed getting to know you and your unique intelligence and and uh, the wonderful positive strength that you are bringing to to what you're doing in the world. I um I wish you every kind of success with your dreams and with your efforts. And let's please stay in touch. I, w- I would love to actually, I would love to talk to you more. Yeah. yeah. I, I know um, we did actually meet at the event, but I think we did meet previously at El Centro as well. You were doing something um, with. Oh my God. I, I have such an awful memory for. No, you're, you're fine. <laughs> I do it the same. Um, but it was so great meeting you there too. And you talked so much about the need of community involvement and community communication um, because you were talking about uh, Radio Santa Ana and those sort of things. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I would love to keep in contact and I hope we do it. Yes. Yes. And this time I will not forget your face or your voice. <laughs> Good to know. Santa Ana is wonderfully full of activist youth. Many of the young people I've interviewed for this show have been extraordinarily committed to social justice and to changing the established order of things. Diana is another. It's admirable and it's hopeful, of course. It's also appallingly touching to hear the calm matter-of-factness with which people in their 20s, like Diana, face and name the possibility that they won't have a long life or a comfortable future, as Diana does when I ask her where she might be in 20 years. That moment, even more than the rapport we shared in this interview, has stayed with me. It haunts me. There's so much to do to save the world, and our time is so limited. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Cio Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción, sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles, mi orgullo y mi pasión. ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una una, soy una onda, una 
vibración que ronda por el universo vivo y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda 